So the one Sunday I give you time to go back and get a sheet and you guys quit talking. Every other Sunday I'm like trying to get your attention you guys keep talking. So now there's an awkward silence. Thanks a lot. You just threw the whole Holy Spirit off. So Matthew 24 this morning. Sheets in the back there if you guys want to go back and grab on those. We're doing end times here over the next uh, few weeks in our study through Matthew. So in Matthew 24 and 25, it's a focus on end times events. And so I just made that sheet up a little bit there. It gives you a little timeline. There's some space if you want to take notes. We're going to get into some of the details of that as we're kind of going through this. So as people are grabbing sheets there, feel free to keep back there and keep grabbing them. I'll just have a quick word of prayer while they're grabbing the sheets. Lord, thank you for the time to be here. We pray that you would teach, we would listen, help us to learn, grow, understand. Thank you for the time to be here, Lord. Um, we just are excited to learn what you have to say this morning in your name. Amen. So continuing our study here through Matthew, Matthew 24 and 25 are our focus the next couple weeks. And like I said, the focus is on end times. Now here's the thing about end times. There's extremes when it comes to talking about end times. The one extreme is that's the only thing that people focus on. That's all they want to talk about. The end of the world. Who is the Antichrist? And that is their focus. They're so focused on end times and figuring it out and looking for it. They forget the pure simplicity of you're supposed to be representing Jesus Christ. Right here, right now, where you live and where you work. Now the other extreme is the people that don't even want to talk about it. Well, I'm not going to be here anyway. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't apply. They just don't want to see anything. And the problem is with that extreme, you don't see prophecies coming together. You don't see the Lord moving and working. He wants us to have a working knowledge here of what the end times look like and what this is going to be. It does affect us. Now, in Colossians 3, verse 2, it says we're supposed to set your mind on heavenly things, not on things on the earth. When you have an understanding of end times, it helps you to focus on the big picture, eternity. So that way when you're going through a difficult time at work or at home and in life, you always have in the back of your mind, listen, in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, does this really matter? Christ could return at any moment. This is a phrase that we use a lot at the Irvin House. Something may be coming up days, weeks, months down the road. We're getting worked up about it. Somebody will stop and say, you know what? Jesus may return before then. So why are we even getting worked up? Set your mind on heavenly things. The other thing is in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2 verse 28 that says we're supposed to look unto Jesus and his returning. It has a purifying effect on us. Christ is going to return. And when he returns, how are we going to be living our lives? What is our walk going to look like at that moment? And so therefore in the back of our mind we know Christ is returning and coming back. It purifies us in the sense of living for that moment. To say Jesus when you return I want to be ready for you. I've used this example with you before. If you say you're coming over to my house, you're going to be there at 3 o'clock, my house will be clean at 2.59. It will not be clean at 2.58.57. If you show up very respectfully five minutes earlier, you're going to sit in your car until 3 o'clock. We don't know when Jesus is returning. Therefore, our house is always ready for him. Our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So end times has those two extremes. And we need to realize, no, we need to have an understanding of it. We set our mind on heavenly things. And we understand Jesus is returning. And that keeps our focus. Does that mean the things we're doing in this world aren't important? You may have a big thing going on at work tomorrow. Does that mean you just show up tomorrow and say, hey, in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, this doesn't matter? No, you work as if working for the Lord. Let's say you have a project you're working on at home. Does that mean you go home and do nothing today? No. Those things are important, but we never let it supersede eternity. Never let anything supersede eternity. We keep our focus on the Lord. 
One of the best bits of marriage advice I've ever heard. Dawn wrote a great book on marriage. And that couple was saying as they wrote it, that a couple that is focused on Christ and focused on eternity, it's amazing how many of the little fights and arguments just disappear. Because in the whole scheme of heaven and hell, a lot of the things we get worked up on do not matter. Keep your eyes on Christ and your eyes on Jesus. And that's what I want you to remember as we go through end times here for the next couple weeks as we continue our study here through the book of Matthew. So, with that being said, Matthew 24, verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that should not be thrown down. Now, you've got to understand the temple a little bit here. This is an amazing structure. This temple, this idea of a temple had been around for thousands of years. It started out with the concept of the tabernacle. That's what Moses had if you go out and study Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, etc. That was a portable tent that they would use. Now Solomon built the first temple. Now that was destroyed by Babylon. Well then Ezra and Zerubbabel came back and built another temple. That's the temple we're talking about right here. Now Herod, at this time, decided to do a remodeling project. It took over 80 years. It was huge. The temple went from being a functional building to this beautiful architectural masterpiece that was beautiful. We know from studying this out in Matthew and Mark as the disciples are walking by the temple, they're kind of ooing and aahing over this thing. Jesus, do you see this building? It's amazing. Do you see the stones? We know from history some of the size of these stones. Listen to these dimensions. 37 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet thick. That's one stone. 37 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 foot thick. This is Herod's remodeling project, overlaid with gold. It was beautiful. And you have to remember from a Jewish perspective, this idea of the temple had been a mainstay for a thousand years. This is what your religion circled around. The temple sacrifices everything. So as they walk by, Jesus just kind of says to them in verse 2, Yeah, do you see it? It's all coming down. That would kind of be earth shattering, wouldn't it? The focus there, all of a sudden, what would you think about that? And then it did happen. 70 AD, the Roman general Titus came and demolished the temple. And the Jews at this moment do not have a temple. Haven't had one in 2,000 years. What was going on was this. The disciples were focusing on the outside. The building was beautiful. But they weren't focusing on the heart issue of what was really going on with the nation of Israel. It reminds me of what we talked about last week in Matthew 23. Just jump back one chapter to verse 27, where Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like a whitewashed tomb, which indeed appears beautifully outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. See, the temple looked great on the outside. But what was happening? It had become this legalistic dead religion that the Jews were following when the Messiah was right there. So Jesus is saying it's time for that to be torn down and it's time to focus on the new. That is a huge statement. For Jesus to say that would be once again earth shattering. That's why in verse 3, now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? The disciples are saying, you've got to tell us more about this. This is a big deal. See, Jesus is moving on. Remember Matthew 21, Palm Sunday, triumphant entry. He fulfills all the prophecies. Right there, he's prophesied that he was the king, the Messiah, and he proved it. And then what happened in Matthew 22, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees came and tested him. He passed all the tests. He's the Messiah. Finally, in Matthew 23, he stops and says, now I'm going to judge you. Your false 
fake hypocritical religion. And in Matthew 24, did you catch verse 1? Jesus went out and departed from the temple. That's symbolic. He's leaving it. He's done. The temple is going to be destroyed. Now, ultimately, it's going to come to the veil being ripped in two here in just a couple days. So Jesus is moving on, and the disciples now are trying to catch up to him. So they come to him in verse 3 saying, what is going on? Please note a couple things here. First thing in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. This is a private conversation between Jesus and some of his disciples. I'm not saying you don't talk about end times events with non-believers. You can. I have noticed in my time of sharing Christ with people, trying to talk to non-believers about end time events, they don't really care. They don't really get it. It doesn't mean a lot to them. If you go up to that non-believer at work tomorrow, and they don't care about the Lord, and you go up to them and say, hey, Jesus could return today. Well, good for you. I hope he does. That doesn't mean anything to them. As believers, we have the eager anticipation, the expectation of the return of Christ because we get to go home. Alan, if you could put that first slide up there. That's what we focus on. But a non-believer, yeah, they're not going to get a whole lot out of it. They're not going to care. I just want to talk about some of these terms here as we get ready to move on with end times. We're going to use these two terms a lot, second coming and rapture. Now, if you got your sheets right there, You can look. To the left, the rapture is the first event that we're actually kind of referring to here. The rapture is this. Christ meets us in the air. This is the one that can happen instantaneous at any moment. Jesus could return, and the body of believers that believe in Christ are gone. We're raptured out. Christ meets us in the air. Christ returns to take us home. We go home with Christ. That could happen at any time. Now, once again, if you go up to a non-believer and say, one day I may not show up, you may be standing, one day I may just disappear, they may say, good. It may not carry much weight with them. Second coming. This is at the end, if you're looking at your sheets. This is at the end of the tribulation period, which we're going to get into this over the next couple weeks. Christ steps foot on the earth. He literally comes back physically to rule and reign for a thousand years. He reigns from Jerusalem as the king that he is supposed to be. book of Isaiah, one of my favorite passages, talks about how Jesus will actually lead up Bible studies in the temple. Can you imagine that? Saying, I'm going to go hear Jesus explain the book of John. Because he was there. In fact, the book of John says at the end that if they would try to write down everything that Christ did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain it. We have a thousand years of the Bible studies of Christ. So Christ steps foot on this earth. Christ returns to reign. We return with Christ. We come back and we reign with him. And we'll go over this the next few weeks. But So when I use these terms rapture and second coming... Those are the differences between them. You can kind of look at your sheet there a little bit as well, too. And Alan will leave that up as we go through it. So they come to him in verse 3, and they say two questions. When is this going to happen? What's the sign of your coming? So when's this temple going to be destroyed? And what does it look like when you come, Lord? And that's what he starts talking about. Now, as we go through this, you're going to see these things happening right here, right now. You're going to see these things starting to go along. And I tell you, things are being fulfilled right in front of us. If you want to do a little bit of a study on your own later on, I encourage you to take Revelation 6, the different seal judgments, and compare them to Matthew 24. And you're going to see them lining up with each other nearly perfectly. We're in the season of the signs starting to happen. This is what it's called the end times. What does it look like? Verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not troubled. 
For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the sorrows. Then they will deliver you up in tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because of lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. These are the signs that he says to look for, to know that his coming is imminent. First one, verses 4 and 5. Deception. No one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Keep your hand here in Matthew. Please go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. This idea of deception. This is a sign of the end. False teaching, false prophets, false messiahs. If you want to have a little bit of fun this afternoon, there's a whole Wikipedia page devoted to people who claim to be Christ. And you can go look right now of everybody who is living at this moment who claims to be Jesus. Now what did Jesus say 2,000 years ago? Many will say, I am the Christ. And some of the other gospel accounts, many will say, hey, go into the wilderness and find him here. Hey, go find him there. Jesus said, no, that's not the way it's going to be. Right now, that is being fulfilled right in front of us. What does Paul tell us about the end time? 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What is one of the signs of the end times? Is constant deception. Constant false teaching, false prophets, false messiahs. People taking God's word and twisting it. You know, I got saved about 23 years ago. And I remember when I first got saved, there seemed to be like this big false teaching thing. Like pop up once every couple years. And now it seems like it's just all over the place. Everywhere you look, there's this false doctrine, this false teaching. And it's just constantly abounding in it. And as believers, we need to be aware of this. Verse 14, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. So Paul is saying, listen, you know truth. You know to understand the false from the real. How do we know truth? Verse 15, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I tell you, body of Christ, get into the Bible. As you get into the Bible, you'll see truth. And as you see truth, you'll be able to tell the false. You'll be able to see the deception. You'll be able to understand it. I use these two examples all the time. You remember a few years ago, I think it was 2012, I lose track of time. Remember the guy put the billboards up? Jesus was going to return. He told us the day. Remember when it was? Now, that got a lot of people worked up. When I saw that, my first thought was, what does the Bible say? No man knows the day or the hour. So if somebody's telling me they know the day and the hour, either they are right and the Bible is wrong... Or they are wrong and the Bible is right. I know the truth of the scriptures. That man cannot know when Jesus is returning. Or even going back years before that, there was a big push that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Remember that? Okay, well, what does the Bible say about that? Jesus is married. He's married to you and I. We're the bride of Christ. So he's not married to Mary Magdalene. The Bible doesn't say that. When you know the truth of the scriptures, all of a sudden you don't have to worry about it. A few years ago, somebody came up to me and said, hey, I just read this article online. This guy is saying that Jesus is going to return and the Jews are going to build a temple and the temple is going to be dedicated in the spring. And as soon as the temple is dedicated, Jesus is going to return. I see, he goes, what do you think about it? I said, let's mark the date on the calendar and see if it happens. If it happens, 
It's truth. If it doesn't, it's not truth. Because the Bible says this. Stick to the scriptures. Make sure you understand it. So that way when you hear all these false teachings and false doctrines, there's something in your spirit that clicks. The Holy Spirit says, that isn't right. And you know that. Just jump over a couple books and go with me real quick to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. What about all these people claiming to be the Christ? Another sign of the end times. People claiming to be Jesus. 1 John chapter 2. Start in verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know this is the last hour. John is saying, guys, this is the end. How do we know it's the end? Because the Antichrist, depending on your translation, big A, which we'll get to him next week, is coming. But even now there's a lot of Antichrist, little A. They're trying to pull people away from a relationship with Jesus. John says it's happening right now. Now, some of you may be quick to think it said he wrote that 2,000 years ago. How long is an hour? What John is trying to say is we're in the end times. And it's just progressively getting worse and worse and worse. And there's more signs, more examples of it coming and happening. And so, therefore, we need to be ready and we need to be prepared. The Lord is not trying to fool us with this. He said, this is what you look for. And as you look for it, you are seeing it happen in front of you. Deception, false Christs, deceiving. We've covered that one. What about the next one? Verse 6. You hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Every time you turn on the news, someone's fighting. There's always a threat of something. Iran's going to do something. Russia's going to do something. North Korea's going to do something. Syria things are happening. It's all over. Guess what? The Bible says, yeah, I know. That's what's supposed to happen. As we get into this in a little bit, you're going to see the Bible already says Russia's going to come down from the north against Israel. The Bible already says Iran's going to come up from the south against Israel. The Bible already claims that. We already know that. But what are we supposed to do when we hear this? Verse 6, see that you are not troubled. Oh, body of Christ, when you watch the news and the world is falling apart, don't let that get to you. Don't. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I see so many Christians getting worked up. Well, did you see what they're doing? Did you hear about this? Did you notice? Well, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but I know what the Bible says. Don't be troubled by it. This is a sign of the end times. 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a strength, power, and a sound mind. When I see a believer walking in fear of potential end time events, I want to remind them, no, 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 no. We know how that ends. We know what happens. But I care. I care too. But I'm also reminded of this, Philippians 3.20. My citizenship is in heaven. And that's what we need to remember. Is that yes, there's a lot of awful things going on. And I want to see people get saved. I want people to come know Christ. But the Lord is constantly telling me throughout the Bible. James, keep your mind on eternity. Keep your mind on heaven. That is what matters and focuses on. So if you hear about this end time stuff and I start talking about rapture, second coming, and I start talking about wars and rumors of wars and your stomach starts, I don't know if I like this. Do not be troubled. God is in control. He's sovereign. We trust that. What else is supposed to happen? Verse 7. Famines, pestilences, earthquakes. Boy, you can get online. You can just look at the straight facts of this. How this stuff is just progressing. You know, I just remember from school learning about the uh, Spanish flu about 100 years ago. 50 million plus people killed. 
And just a couple years ago, everybody was talking about Ebola, and a few years before that, it was the swine flu. There's all this type of stuff that's going around that we're all worried about and wondering about. What about earthquakes? I was just doing a little bit of research on this for the lesson, and even the world, the secular world, is noticing about earthquakes. I just want to share this real quick. Oklahoma. Oklahoma used to have one to two three-point magnitude earthquakes a year. One to two. Now, they're having two a day. And that's just the secular world even noticing that something's going on. 2,000 years ago, earthquakes in various places, famines, pestilences. It's being fulfilled right in front of us. Verse 8, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, depending on your translation, some of yours may say, this is the beginning of birth pains. Pre-labor. This original Greek word, sorrows, there literally means the pain of childbirth. But it's just the beginning. If you've ever read Revelation, you know what's coming. You know how awful it's going to be. This right here, right now, is a tiny little glimpse of what it's going to really become and be like. This is just the pre-labor. I can remember when we started having our children... And I remember the first time that Dawn went to the hospital there to have our firstborn, Elias. And you're walking in, you've never experienced anything like this before, and the labor and the contractions and the pain, and you realize they just keep getting more and more. And I can remember when she was getting ready to have Elias when it was near the end of him about to come, I remember looking at her in bed, and in between the contractions, I thought, I don't think she's alive. She's not even moving. She's not even breathing. The pre-labor we thought was bad. It just keeps getting more. I remember going to one of the childbirth classes and the nurse told this example of what she does. People will call into the hospital a lot and the dad will say something like, hey, my wife's in labor. Should we come in right now? And the nurse said, I can hear the mom talking in the background. So she said, put the mom on the phone. So she puts the mom on the phone and she's like, how are the contractions? The mom's like, oh, they're awful. Contractions are awful. And the mom's like, okay, well, talk me through it. And the mom will be like, you know what? I'm having a contraction right now. It is just awful. The pain's so miserable. The nurse would tell us, she goes, listen, if you can talk to me through the contraction, yeah, you're not close. (laughs) Stay home. When she can't talk, then you start thinking about starting to come in. Well, right now we look at this world, verse 8, and we say, it's awful. Oh, guys, it's not awful yet. Do you realize right here, right now, we're meeting freely and openly, and we're proclaiming Christ? Most of you are going to be able to go into work today, tomorrow, you may get a little bit of backlash. You may get a boss or a co-worker that says not to, but you're going to be able to proclaim the Lord. You can put a sign in your front yard right now. You can take your Bible anywhere you want to go. This is just the beginning. This is the pre-labor. Now, we're very blessed where we live that we have the freedom to do this. In parts of the world, they're a lot farther along than we are. But guess what's coming? Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Note the progression. Verse 9, you have persecution. We don't really face a lot of persecution. We don't. We face some comments. We face a little bit here and there. But compared to the rest of the world, we're not facing persecution. What happens after persecution? Verse 10, hate. What happens after hate? Verse 11, deception. Now work backwards. What happens is this. The deception allows people to hate, which then allows the persecution. And the deception is already starting to happen. Christians, we're back-minded people. We're unloving. 
We hate people. Certain choices of lifestyle and actions. How dare you as a believer, as a Christian, say those things. And so therefore the deception is we're the oddballs. So when that deception happens that, well, you can't say anything, next what will happen is the hate. Because when we still stand for truth, people will hate us for standing for truth. Then go back to verse 10. Then you're going to start getting into what? Delivering up to tribulation, killing and hating. It's not much different than what Hitler did with the Holocaust. The deception, the Jews are bad, which fueled the hate, which led to the Holocaust. Same thing is going to happen today as believers. When we take a stand for the truth, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to do that. And guess what? Verses 9, 10, and 11 told us this 2,000 years ago. Can you imagine being one of those disciples? You're sitting there. And the only thing you did was mention the temple to Jesus. Jesus, isn't that pretty? Oh, you think that's pretty? It's going to be tore down. Block upon block. Those blocks that are 37 by 12 by 18 feet. Yeah, they're being torn down. Oh, and guess what, disciples? Verse 9, they're going to hate you, kill you, everything. Wow. But what does he say? Verse 12, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Sin will abound. The world will become cold. The world is a very cold place right now. But what I'm starting to see is the church becoming a very cold place. The faith of many starts to grow cold. That interesting term right there in verse 12, the love of many will grow cold. Some of you go to a King James or as will say, a wax cold. It's an interesting Greek word. What it means is this, when the wax is hot, it's moldable, it's movable. You guys have played with hot wax before. You can mess with it, you can go with it. The term literally means wax cold as you take it and you blow on it so it becomes firm and it doesn't move anymore. Well, what Jesus is trying to say here is, listen, there's going to be a lot of people that become cold. They're immovable. They're not moving to the Holy Spirit anymore. They're not willing to listen. Maybe it's the church that says, this is the way we've always done it. We're not changing our way. Or it's the believer that says, I'm not willing, Lord. If you say go, I'm staying. You've waxed cold. You're no longer moldable. So what happens is God wants to come down and he wants to take the hot wax and mold you and shape you into what he wants to use you for. And he wants to use you mightily, but you've become cold and you're therefore immovable. And what happens to the church today? A lot of waxing cold. I've used this example many times here lately. I see so many believers start out hot wax, if you will, and then they just plateau. Like I said, they're not doing anything morally wrong. They're not really doing anything dumb. They're not opposed to God. But they've lost this fire, this fervor, and they've waxed cold. And so what happens is they're no longer thinking about eternity. They're thinking about a work project or a home project or just their own needs and wants. And what happens is there's nobody thinking about eternity and Christ and Jesus and people dying. Because we're too busy thinking about us. How do we keep that from happening? Verse 13. He who endures to the end shall be saved. We endure. We realize what's coming. We fight through it. Some translations say we stand firm. You know how difficult that is to do? I've got a few verses I want to share with that. Alan, if you could put up those next passages here real quick. Look at this idea of enduring. First one, 1 Corinthians 4.12. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure. If you take a stand for the faith, you're going to be reviled and you're going to be persecuted. It's going to happen. You know, so often we pray that we could work with believers. I was talking to somebody about that this week. You know, you want to have those believers that you work with. And wouldn't it be cool if everybody on my line at work was a believer? Well, it would be kind of cool. It would be kind of fun. 
But more fruit would happen if you're the only believer amongst a whole bunch of non-believers. But we don't want that. Why? Because I don't want to be reviled. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to bless back when somebody attacks me. I don't want to endure. But the Lord says this is what we're called to do as believers. You will be picked on for your faith. You will be mocked for your faith. You will be persecuted for your faith. It will happen. You'll be called all sorts of names and ideas, false things. You know it. We endure. What about the next one? You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We're a soldier. It's a war. It's a fight. And what happens is we want to be soldiers for the Lord, but can't I serve the farthest position back from the front lines? Can't I be a soldier that stays in the trenches? Because as soon as I put my head up, I'm going to get shot at. I don't want to do that. No, you endure as a soldier. Last one. But you'll be watchful in all things. Endure afflictions. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. You have a ministry to fulfill. I don't know what your ministry is. Your ministry right now may be, I'm raising my kids in a godly home in a godly way. Your ministry right now may be, I'm going to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Your ministry may be, I have an unsaved neighbor, or I have a saved neighbor who's going through a difficult time, and I'm just going to go minister to them. I don't know, but fulfill it. But as you fulfill it, realize there's going to be afflictions. You have to endure And what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 24 is, listen, this is going to be difficult. This is going to be tough. And as this toughness happens, a lot of people's true faith is going to be revealed. Because the harder it gets, the more people are going to wax cold. And Jesus is going to say they're not going to be willing. But look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Anytime you see judgment in the Bible, what do you see? grace. You always remember that. When you go through the book of Revelation, you see judgment happening, but you also see the two witnesses. You see the 144,000. You see the angels flying in heaven. Wherever there's judgment, there's grace. That's the God you serve and love. So what is he saying here in verse 14? Even though the world is literally falling apart, the gospel's still going out. Amen to that. This is what we got to remember. This is kind of our introduction to end times, if you will. It's going to get tough. But the only thing that's happening right now is verse 8, the beginning of the sorrows. It goes to a whole other level next week when we start getting into that tribulation period, which we'll get into. But for right here, right now, what Jesus is saying is, listen, it's going to get tough. He goes, are you going to endure? Are you going to keep your faith? Are you going to keep your focus on me? Or as time goes on, are you going to allow the things of this world to affect you, to get at you, to eat at you? So therefore, all your time and energy is whining about this, complaining about that, worked up about this, worried about that, when really it's supposed to be, I'm here to focus on Christ and Christ alone. That is my sole purpose, is to keep my heart, mind, and soul focused on Him. As we said at the beginning, Colossians 3.2, set your mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things. And when that happens, you will endure to the end. Say, Lord, I am yours. Hey, worship team, if you want to come forward here. Let's pray this into our life. Lord, we want to endure to the end. We want to keep our heart, mind, and soul focused on you and all that we say and do. We want to be lights and witnesses for you. Lord, if there's someone here right now going through afflictions, help them to endure. If there's someone being persecuted, help them to endure. Someone being reviled, help them to endure. Help us to fulfill the ministry you gave us and to be lights and witnesses for you in all that we say and all that we do. And we want to see the gospel preached in all the world.